morning. As we were singing that last song, I was just wondering, why do we come to church? <laughs> why do we bother getting up and getting out of bed and coming to church? Is it because we want to be seen? Is it because we want to see other people? Is it because we get paid to do it? Is it there are a whole host of reasons? In that last song, we'll talk a bit more about that as we go through uh, this morning. I'm going to start with a disclaimer. Today's sermon comes in two parts. For the first half of this sermon, I will be repeating myself a lot. Let me say that again. For the first part of this sermon, I will be repeating myself a lot. I will be hammering home a point. There will be lots of hammering going on. You will be hammered this morning. But not in that way. I will be repeating and hammering because the point I want to make in this first half of the sermon is absolutely essential for us to understand, especially as we go over the next few weeks and First Timothy. Here's a rather disturbing conversation I had, I I overheard in Starbucks a few weeks ago. Two guys were chatting together. First guy was saying to the other guy, yeah, so I murdered him last night. Absolutely killed him. Second guy, wow, good for you. Where? Queen Elizabeth Park. Yeah, I had to do it. Especially after what he did to me the last time. I wasn't going to stand for that. I let him have it straight away. No mucking about. Went after him from the off. Bang, bang. And he went down. He'd try to get up off the floor, but I wouldn't let him. Every time he'd try to get back up, I just laid into him again. Eventually, he just gave up. He knew it was all over. I kicked him whilst he was down. It was actually all over very quickly. Now, at this point, I was starting to sweat. What was I to do? I was overhearing a confession of the most vicious and brutal murder. I reached for my phone, ready to call 911. And then I heard the first guy say, yeah, I really enjoy playing tennis with that guy. (laughs) He allows my competitive juices to flow. Ladies and gentlemen, context is everything. Let me say that again. Context is everything. 
I was on the verge of having the VPD raid my local Starbucks and take down a guy whose only crime was to boast about his tennis game. Why did I get it so wrong? Because I didn't know the context of the conversation. Now, here's the thing. If we don't know the context of something we hear or read, we can come to wildly wrong conclusions or very serious and damaging misunderstandings. I'm going to read you a paragraph. Tell me what it's telling you. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. What on earth is that all about? You are such a clever clock, aren't you? <laughs> if you didn't know the context, if you didn't know the context of this, you would think you would come to some conclusion that, you know what, in life it's better to run than walk. Or a seashore is better than uh, a street. But the context is everything. It's talking about a kite flying a kite. Daphne, well done. <laughs> you, <laughs> the brain's working. The body is failing, but the brain is working. Praise God. The context changes the message of the paragraph. It now makes sense. So, in the same way when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to our reading of Scripture, it's vital that we know the context of a verse or a passage if we fully understand it and apply it to our lives. Let me say that again. It's vital that we know the context of a verse or a passage if we are to fully understand it and how it might apply to our lives. Here's some verses of Scripture that could cause some issues if we take them out of context, if we take them out of the time and the situation and the culture in which they're written. Deuteronomy 22 says this, A woman must not wear men's clothing. Does that mean Lululemon pants for women are evil? <laughs> It's all in the cultural context. It's in Leviticus, it says, anyone who curses his mother or father must be put to death. Does this mean the end to grumpy, rebellious teenagers? No. You need to read it in the cultural context of what was going on at the time. Leviticus 21.17 says, Anyone with a flat nose cannot go to the altar of God. 
fairly flat. Does that mean that the greeters at the door not only have to smile and give out a bulletin, they have to get the measure out and the tape out to measure the size of your nose? No. Read it in the context. Proverbs 21.19 says this, It's better to live alone in the desert than with a crabby, complaining wife. Does this mean that a husband can move to the Sahara to get away from a whinging wife? You get the point. It's incredibly important to read the Bible correctly. God's word is totally relevant to us in 2019. I fully believe that. We learn from it. It helps guide our lives. But God chose to speak to us not in a vacuum. He chose to speak to us within particular circumstances at particular times and events in human history. And his word was expressed in the vocabulary of the time and conditioned by that particular culture. So we have to firstly understand what he was saying to those people at the time in the culture, in the cultural context, and then decide how it relates to us today. If we don't do that, then we're in danger of getting our theological knickers in a twist. Let me give you another silly illustration. I told you I was going to hammer today, and this is what we're doing. I originally come from a different country and a slightly different culture, and we speak slightly differently. You might have to understand my language a little bit to understand me. So, for example, if I say to you, I was horrified the other day. I saw a man smoking a fag on the bus. Now, in, your, in the Canadian North American culture, that has a completely different meaning to what I mean when it, a fag is a cigarette. In the UK. Or imagine poor Amy, my eldest daughter, when she innocently asked on her first day at a Canadian school, she was doing a drawing, she had made a mistake, and she asked her neighbor, do you have a rubber? <laughs> now Amy, coming from the UK, knows that's an eraser. She had made a mistake. The teacher was horrified. Context is everything. Before we read a passage of scripture, we need to know things like who wrote it? Who, who did he write it to? When did he write it? And perhaps most importantly, why did he write it? And this is particularly true about uh, what we know as the epistles in the New Testament or letters. All of these letters to Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, Thessalonians, and all of those. These were written to a particular church at a particular time to address a particular problem or series of specific problems in the church. And so we need to know the context before we read and study them. Because if we don't, then we could make up some awful, long-lasting uh, decisions. 
and hurtful decisions. I'm going to give you another silly example. Are you being hammered enough here? If the Apostle Paul were to write a letter to the church at City View, okay, here's a couple of things that Paul might write. The Epistle to the Church at City View. Greetings to the church at City View. I thank God every time I remember you and rejoice in the words of your brother Jeff when he says, City View does not have stained glass windows but coffee-stained carpets. This is good and pleasing to the Lord. Now, hang on. If churches around the world who know nothing about City View read this, they would perhaps assume that Paul is saying, you know, it's good for all churches to spill coffee on their carpets. We would have coffee spilling ceremonies like we do communion. You can imagine it. No, the context is the makeup of the church here at City View. We're not pretentious. It welcomes all sorts and we're a group of messy people with messy lives trying to follow Jesus. It's not about the messy carpet. Or Paul might go on to write, I am filled with joy every time I hear your pastor's jokes, especially those about your brother Phil. Now, if Paul did write that, then churches around the world might be thinking, oh, we need to tell more jokes. And we need to tell them about a fill. <laughs> Quick, let's find a fill in our church. If we don't have a fill in our church, then we're not spiritual enough. Because we can't tell jokes about Phil. So people around the world in churches would be going out evangelizing Phil's to bring them into church so that they could tell jokes about them. <laughs> Silly examples. But you get the point. If you don't read Scripture properly, you come up with some weird and wacky things. Context is everything. Okay, I'm going to stop the hammering now. But why am I laboring this point? Because the next eight verses we're going to look at in 1 Timothy have caused so much controversy over the years and down through the centuries because I would suggest that they've been read out of context. Not only have they caused controversy, but they've also been used to undermine and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ and the joy and privilege of half the population to proclaim it. That's why it's important. And that's why we're going to spend probably three weeks on these eight verses. Today, we're just going to look at three of them. 
And here's what I want to do. I'm going to read them to you, and then I'm going to explain the context, what's going on in the church for Paul to write these verses. And then I want to show you the implications and applications for us at City View in 2019. Okay, let's, uh, we're in, where are we? We're in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, just three verses. Let me read them to you first of all. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. If you think that's bad, come back for the next five verses. What is going on here? Well, you remember that we saw last week, Paul uh, is telling this dysfunctional church in, uh, in Ephesus that first of all, they needed to do what? They needed to pray. You need to pray. Pray for uh, your needs. Pray for the needs of others. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray for their mission, which was saving the lost. Well, here he talks about what's happening when the church comes together to worship. And the things that were getting in the way. He's basically calling the church to come back to the heart of worship. And I want you to see this morning that for Paul, the issue is not gender. It's focus. The issue is not macho men and vain women, but attitude. It's not about scrapping and scrunches, but Jesus. Can I tell you that there is only one thing that's wrong with the church? Only one thing that stops the church from being God's perfect witness on earth. Just one thing that gets in the way of real and authentic worship. It's you. And me. It's us. It's people. If it wasn't for people, the church would be a fantastic community. <laughs> it would. It would. Everything would be great. Everything's great until you put us in the equation. And here Paul is telling us what the people in the church in Ephesus were doing. Look at verse 8. I want men to lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. Basically what's happening, the men were angry. They were arguing with each other. We read about that in chapter 1, about all this false teaching coming in and controversies. We're going to read about it again in in, uh, chapter 6 when we get there. The men were full of it. They're walking around quoting scripture, sprouting 
uh, spouting this new theory or that new theory, spreading conspiracies, trying to get people on their side. And they were coming together to worship, walking through the doors, arguing with each other, trying to get one over on the opposition. They were full of anger. They were getting riled up by people who disagreed with them. They were full of pride. I'm right. You're wrong. They wanted their voice to be heard. My way is best. They wanted to be the spotlight on them. Perhaps there were even little fights and scuffles over by the coffee and the, and the cookies. So that's going on. And then Paul tells us more. Look at verses 9 to 18. Isn't that 9 to 10? All of this going on. Now this is where we need to understand the cultural context. About what Paul is saying. Has anyone got braided hair here this morning? Thank God. Because it's of the devil, you know. Braided hair. No. There's a transition going on in Paul's day. See, women had long hair and they covered it most of the time. And the only people that could see uh, their hair would be their husbands. But hairstyles were beginning to change, as they do down through history. And women, what they were doing, they're trying to model themselves on the emperor's wives, who would wear their hair in braids, and they'd wear expensive jewelry in their hair and... Uh, and on their hands and everything, and they would spend lots of time and money trying to compete with each other. Who looks the best? And here's the problem. You see, the church in Ephesus would have been a diverse church. You would have had uh, diversity ethnically. So you would have had Jews and Gentiles there. But also economically, you would have had slaves and free in the church. So some women may only have, have had one dress that they got, I don't know, in Walmart or something. Nothing against Walmart. That just came to mind. <laughs> but others would have a whole wardrobe full of dresses, designer dresses, those ones that you buy in Holt Renfrew. I went shopping to Holt Renfrew once for a, uh, something for my wife. I walked out because there was no price tags on the clothes. You know that they're expensive when there's no price tags on the clothes. So here's what's happening as they gather for worship. The Walmart women are coming in with their worn-out dresses, and then the Holt Renfrew bling women would come in wearing the Yves Saint Laurent outfit, hair and makeup perfect, expensive jewelry around their necks, in their hair, on their finger, fingers, saying, look at me. Don't I look good? Oh, you like the dress? Oh, this old thing? 
And all the men are thinking, I wish my wife looked like that. And all the women are thinking, I'm going to kill her. So picture the scene at this church in Ephesus on a Sunday morning. You've got a group of men scrapping over there. Pushing and shoving and arguing and disagreeing with one another. And some of the women coming in, hips moving, everything moving, swaying, diamonds sparkling. And here's the thing. No one is focused on Jesus. No one is looking at Jesus. Where's the focus. You see, it's, it's not about macho men and, or vain women. Paul is not giving a commentary on gender stereotypes here. Because the attitudes behind the actions are not gender specific. Anger, pride, vanity, self-seeking, self-promoting. We can all Male and female identify with those. No, Paul is saying to the church then and the church here this morning, where is your focus when you come to worship? Is it on you or is it on Jesus? You see, the men and women in Ephesus were coming to church not to focus on Jesus, but to focus on themselves. They're spending so much time fighting and arguing and making themselves the center of attention that their hearts are not ready for worship and for meeting the living God. And so Paul tells the guys, stop fighting and do what? Lift up holy hands. Why? Because when we lift up our hands in prayer and worship, who is it that we're pointing to? We're like sons and daughters reaching out to our Heavenly Father, surrendering everything that we have, surrendering our whole selves to Him, showing that it's Jesus we put our hope in. It's Jesus that we put our trust in. It's Jesus we put our faith in. Because it's never about us. It's always about him. Raising our hands in adoration and surrender to Jesus isn't weakness. It's actually strength. It's realizing that we are nothing without him. It's not about us. And Paul says to the women here, dress modestly and do good deeds now what's modestly is he saying go home get some old curtains put a hole in it and cover everything up no you see it's not actually about what we look like or what we wear should church be like school do you remember I don't know if you had this at your school, but in our school we had school uniforms where uh, you'd go into assembly and someone would be there with a tape measure to see how uh, high your skirt was. And if it, it was too short, then you had to sort of roll it back down again. 
what happens. Apparently, that's what I've been told happens. I, did, I didn't do it. I didn't go to that sort of school. Is that what we should do at church? Get a measure out. No, that's not modest enough. Go home. That is legalism. It's not what Paul is saying. Is it wrong for men and women to look good? Absolutely not. But that's not what it's about. It's not about the hemline or the neckline. It's actually about the heart. Is it full of you and I want all the attention or is it full of Jesus? What are we focusing on? Paul says focus on Jesus. He's saying to the other people here, focus on good deeds, doing good. Focus on the work that Jesus has called you to do, which comes out of our love for him. I want to finish with just two stories that illustrate this. One about a church a number of years ago, and then a more personal story that actually occurred on Friday night. Uh, We sung uh, the song Heart of Worship just earlier. Well, back in the late 90s, there was a huge church meeting in North London, a place called Watford in North London in the UK called Soul Survivor. And the worship pastor there was Matt Redmond. Matt Redmond, the famous worship leader. Uh, And this church was full of young people. It was full of 20-somethings, and they had thousands there on Sundays. But the pastor there at the time sensed that there was something missing, that their worship gatherings were going flat. So the pastor did something incredibly brave. He decided to get rid of the sound system and the worship band. For a few months. And basically what they did, they just worshipped together with just their voices. His point was that they had lost their way in worship. And the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. And during this season, the pastor challenged the congregation to be participants in worship, not consumers. To come ready to engage with God themselves from the heart, not just watch. He wanted them to come as worshippers, not as concert goers. And do you know what happened? A lot of people left the church. But during that time, the worship became so much from the heart. And it revolutionized the church. And eventually they did bring back the band, because they had learned that lesson. And out of that time, Matt Redman wrote the song that we sung earlier. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry for the thing that I've made it, When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. What can happen when we get distracted? 
And the second story happened to me on Friday night. Uh, myself, Kristin, and Tanya went to our association's uh, annual general meeting. I'll be honest, I wasn't looking forward to it. I hate meetings at the best of times. But there was something being discussed there that I disagreed with strongly. And uh, I wanted to be there. I was going to vote against something. And I was a bit ticked off with the leadership of the association. And I got there, and I was ready. Fight. I got into this building, a lovely building. Just been newly decorated. Looked lovely. Carpet was there were two big screens either side of the stage paint was new paint and it was the lighting was new and, and there was a band full band I mean we had like there was about seven or eight people up on the stage playing and they, st um, they started to play and, and uh, some worship songs and I'm standing there looking around at this church, thinking, oh, it's so nice. Wish there was rooms like this. Oh, God. And then I caught the eye of, of one of the leaders that I disagreed with. And I sort of gave him the Christian stare. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I smiled. And I was having lots of non-Christian thoughts. And I thought, oh, okay, well, the, everyone else is singing. I better try to sing. And I tried to sing some of the words. And I couldn't. I couldn't sing the words. It was as though they were getting stuck in my throat. And then... One of the songs they sang, they, they sang this chorus over and over again with these words. Deep cries out to deep. Deep cries out to deep. So we cry out to, we cry out to you, Jesus. And as I was listening to that, this huge wave of conviction came over me. And I realized I'm standing there trying to sing when it was all about me. It was all about me. My envy. My disappointment. My anger. My agenda. And there was Jesus calling out to me at my deepest level. The living God calling out to me and drawing himself to me. And so all I could do at that point was I just closed my eyes. I couldn't, still couldn't sing. And I just had to allow the Spirit of God to just wash over me. And it washed away my pride and my vanity. 
and we got to the business part of the evening and I thought I was going to stand up and say lots of things and I didn't. I didn't. Because it wasn't necessary. I would have only been doing it because of me. I learned once more that you cannot worship with bitterness in your heart. You can't. You can mouth the words, but you cannot worship with bitterness and anger in your heart. Maybe for some of us this morning, we've become distracted. Maybe we've come into this place this morning, maybe with our hearts and minds on ourselves. Maybe on issues that we're facing, maybe on difficult situations, maybe on difficult, broken relationships, disagreements, or maybe we've come in wanting things our own way. And what's happened is we've taken our eyes off Jesus. Jesus reminds us to seek him and his Father's kingdom first. Seek me first, he says. And then everything else will be taken care of. Above everything else, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Maybe you felt convicted like I felt convicted on Friday night this morning. And maybe like me, you need to come and say sorry. Sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. I've made it all about me. Me, me, me. My way. I need to be right my anger and it's not it's all about you Father I pray by your Holy Spirit you would come and wash away our pride would you wash away our anger would you wash away our bitterness and replace it with your love. Your love for us and your love for others. Can you do that now?